Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Anna Charles, Senior Advisor to the Chief Executive here at the King's Fund and your host for this episode. Now we may be stuck working from our bedrooms and our kitchen tables, but that isn't stopping us here at the King's Fund from touring the world, albeit virtually, to find out what we can learn from healthcare systems abroad. With the support of NHS England and NHS Improvement, we've recently been connecting integrated care systems in England with health systems from across the globe to talk about the challenges and opportunities they're facing and share ideas on the future of health and care. Now, lots of changes have clearly taken place to the way care is delivered over the past year or so, including different ways of supporting people at home and working with communities and a massive shift to virtual consultations and using digital technologies. And we're not alone in the UK in seeing those shifts. So many health systems around the world have been making similar changes. And actually, some of them started on those change journeys long before COVID-19 came along. So today, we'll be looking at two very different systems that have worked over many years to change the way they deliver healthcare and work with their local communities, focusing particularly on how they've used digital technologies to do that. And importantly, we'll be considering what their experiences can teach us about how local health and care systems here in England might be able to respond to some of the challenges they're facing and improve the health and well-being of their communities. So I'm joined by two guests, Dr Steve Tierney, joining us from Anchorage in Alaska, and Dr Henry Chung, joining us from New York. Now, Steve is a GP and Senior Medical Director for Quality Improvement and Chief Medical Informatics Officer at the South Central Foundation. And Henry is a psychiatrist and also Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for the Montefiore Health System. So welcome both of you to the podcast. It's really great to have you with us. Many people listening won't know much, if anything, about your two health systems. So I wonder if we can just start by setting the scene. Henry, starting with you, can you tell us a bit about the Montefiore Health System? Sure. The health system is largely based in the northern part of New York City, now expanding its territory into what we call the Hudson Valley, so some of the counties north of New York City. But its roots are in the Bronx County of New York City, which unfortunately has had the decades-old reputation of being one of the most health-deprived and most challenging socioeconomic areas within all of New York State. I always like to quote this number to give people a sense. So we have in the United States a program called Medicaid, which means essentially publicly supported health care. And you have to qualify, generally speaking, at the poverty levels. In the Bronx County, for which Montefiore started and is really largely responsible, we have 1.8 million residents in that county. 50% of the county is on Medicaid. So that really tells you the kinds of challenges that we have. And it's largely a black and brown community that we serve. And we have tried over the years many innovative approaches. You may have heard about some of the work that we've done in what we call in the United States accountable care, where we take some financial risk in return for trying to improve the quality of care for the community. So we've been a leader in that uh, particular space in the United States and in New York City for quite a while. Strong social justice and equity mission. Let me stop there. Thanks. And, and we'll come back to explore some of those those themes that you've talked about later. Now, Steve, you're also in the States, but Alaska, I think, is more than 4,000 miles away from New York. It's a pretty different setting. I know we were talking earlier, the temperatures at the moment are pretty different. It's a different population. So can you briefly set the scene for us around your system? 
Yes, thank you. We care for 70,000 Alaska Native American Indian customer owners in our sort of geographic area. While we're based in Anchorage, which is our largest sort of municipality, our customers are spread out over a geographic area that would stretch from Miami to San Francisco. So we have clinics that are, I would say, uh, our definition of rural is quite a bit different than most of the world in that you are living on an island with maybe 150 other people and we still have to deliver what we would call first world on time accurate high quality care but it means though that we had to think about care delivery differently to think about what were what were the events we were trying to accomplish and divorce that completely from what were the usual workflows one of the aspects steve that is often talked about in relation to your system of care which i think is often referred to as the the nuca system of care is the way that you bring different staff together to meet people's needs through a multidisciplinary approach and and the approach you've developed that over many years. So can you say a bit about what that looks like in practice and what that means for patients in your system and for staff working in your system as well? It's interesting as as we redesign the care experience, we actually tried to borrow from what we would call very successful retail or um gig economy models. So we said, how does Amazon outcompete Sears? Well, what Amazon did was sell you the whatever it is that you were shopping for at a lower price. But the how they got to that was to attack their infrastructure and overhead costs. So what we did was eliminate all unnecessary infrastructure where possible to be able to say the shortest number of events, tasks, or touches needs to occur for the final event to happen. So for instance, if you're on a tiny island in the middle of the Bering Sea and you need a prescription because you are ill that morning, we would say the final event is you get an accurate diagnosis and a prescription. So what we do is wire our local practitioners out there who would be essentially like EMTs, we call them health aides, and we build a medicine kiosk that looks like a candy machine where the health aide would collaborate with the in Anchorage in the urban area practitioner who would legally make the diagnosis, cue the prescription to be written, and then the pharmacist would drop it electronically remotely from a thousand miles away. Well, what that did for us was open up a whole host of new opportunities. Why would we maintain two building structures or front desk processes when we could say, why don't we just blend them together to say the psychiatrist and the mental health counselor will coexist in the same physical space as the GP and the pharmacist and the dietitian or the home visiting team, where they would work collaboratively to say, we work as a collective work unit, we occupy the same space, and we care for the same identified number of people. And so we will adjust in real time where there will be no referral. There will simply be, please join me in this room. Now, during COVID, we had to adapt quite dramatically to that. And what we actually did was leverage Microsoft Teams to have the same sort of fluid interaction environment. We would say, let's just ring up our teammate who we would normally go physically get 
and then say, would you chat with the person I'm having a video interaction with? Because it looks like they may have some signs and symptoms of depression and we want to bring you in on demand. But there will be no separate queue, separate referral, separate paperwork, separate transfer and separate sort of physical building to maintain. So interesting. One of the things I did want to talk about as well was around supporting self-management because of course one of the ambitions that's often talked about in terms of how health and care systems need to change is the idea of moving away from a paternalistic relationship where people are passive recipients of services and doing instead much more to empower people to manage their own health and well-being. And Henry, I know in Montefiore you've placed a big emphasis on on behavioural health and I wonder if you can tell us a bit about what that means and the kinds of changes that you've made around that. Absolutely. I mean, let's just talk about kind of the example that Steve just brought up a second ago about the person who has depression, generally speaking, sees their GP, their general practitioner, and the general practitioner in our community takes a large amount of responsibility for identifying the depression and then treating the depression. There's still tremendous stigma in our community for black and brown people to walk into a formal mental health facility. So most of the care occurs there. But here's the challenge. Best practices for depression generally requires monthly visits for the person with depression at a minimum, particularly during the acute stage when you are treating them with medications or if not medications, a lot of support. Well, here's where the challenge comes in, which is that in our area, there is absolutely no way that primary care practitioners can easily schedule people back to come in monthly when their panel sizes are as large as they are and when they have spaces open for uh, walk-in access on a daily basis. So the idea of bringing people back on a monthly basis, at least the first four months for the treatment of depression, is unlikely. Here's where we use technology to empower, if you will, the client, the patient, with a care management relationship that would supplement and augment what the GP could do. So we provided for three years now a smartphone application that was given to our patients, which gave them essentially 9 to 5, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. text contact with a care manager whose responsibility it was to help with adherence to the treatment plan, resolve any concerns about the care plan that the patients may have, you know, I'm worried about taking this medication, I'm worried about this diagnosis, what does this mean for me and my work or me and my family, getting them through those early humps and then focusing on these incredibly evidence-based but underutilized aspects of self-management, which generally speaking work for most chronic conditions. How do you get people to start increasing their activity for exercise? How do you start decreasing isolation and improving socialization? How do you work on sleep hygiene? It's through this smartphone app, which has patient educational materials, has ways of interacting with the client using the care management relationship, has ways of getting measurement seamlessly to get those depression scores, those anxiety scores that drive treatment change between primary care visits. By doing all of those things, we've been able to basically improve our outcomes tremendously and triple our rate of staying in touch with patients uh, during their behavioral health treatment with their GP. 
So we've been incredibly excited about it, and that's only expanded since the pandemic. And Steve, what about the NUCA system? Are you bringing behavioural health into into your approach in a similar way? And if so, is technology playing a role in supporting that? What does it look like for you? Well, we had brought behavioural health, essentially master's level clinicians, physically into the space with the GPs in 2005. So we've been physically operating as a collaborative team for a long time when we were actually on paper charts we were doing this so well before technology but what has changed as we've gone further and this is where i think henry's hit on something interesting is uh smartphone technology so our ability to adapt as a system takes years to turn workflows when we have recognized when pressed, it shouldn't take that long. We actually can adapt. When we deconstructed our prior system, we said, if you're a GP, 85% of all the orders for prescriptions and medications and uh, labs and x-rays are repeats. So the vast majority of the work that you do is refilling things with existing plans. What we had to do is, is to say that occupies the majority of the bandwidth and prevents the opportunity it, to intervene with new or rapidly changing. So we had to divert that work into a, a larger capacity but lower cost infrastructure. So we built essentially support clinics with medical assistants who would draw labs, do injections, check vitals, you know, et cetera feed that information stream back to the nurse case manager and GP practitioners. And if all was stable and well, never warranted a visit directly. But what that did is open the door for the bandwidth to say, but as soon as it looked somewhat not normal or felt different or was uncomfortable, well, that warranted the ability for us to deliver an almost, I would say, real-time visit. And then we had to rethink what was a visit. Was a visit a chat on the phone? Was a visit a text? Was a visit a real-time office visit? And the answer is, it should be potentially all three. So I think we're at this, this point where we realized we were furiously creating work for ourselves to do the very new and acute with the same sort of intensity as the simple and mundane and repetitive. And what we have to realize is we can't continue to survive having the same level of intense workflow to refill an existing med that's been in place for 10 years or do a new undiagnosed condition. We have to shift that around. But while we're at it, why would we not shift all of it around? Why would we not say, this should be as fluid as on Microsoft Teams, the app is on my phone, the people who are chatting me today are the people who I work with professionally. Why wouldn't that also be the customers themselves? I'm so struck listening to both of you at how much you're describing these new technologies, new ways of delivering services, but actually it's about how the workflow changes around that and how the ways of working for staff adapt around that that is more important than the technologies in and of themselves. A challenge that's often raised in terms of bringing in new ways of delivering care is to make sure that they don't just work for certain groups of the population, but they're accessible, effective, get good outcomes for everyone in the community. 
And I know already here there is some evidence that certain groups have been more likely, for example, to have negative experience of virtual consultations during COVID than others. And a key concern that's now coming up is, well, if we keep some of those changes in the longer term, might there be issues around digital exclusion, the potential to create or widen health inequalities? So, Henry, coming to you first, obviously you've mentioned a key focus of the Montefiore system is how you work with deprived communities, a large part of your population. So how do you make sure that changes you're making to your delivery models are working for people? And how are you addressing the issue of digital exclusion if that is coming up for you? Yeah, those are great, great issues to ponder. First of all, at the height of the pandemic, technology included phone-based care. And, and that was not unheard of, but to think about that for a second, it meant that if people didn't have video, most people have phones, you know, cell phones certainly, and communicating with their GP or communicating with their mental health practitioner was as simple as a phone call. Now, one could argue that if you have an ongoing relationship with someone and you kind of know them fairly well or intermittently well, a phone-based relationship is probably not bad. And if a phone-based relationship can be enhanced with the kinds of things that Steve talked about, which I'm excited, with the routine things like getting blood work, getting a sense of if anything has changed with the client or with the patient, if you get those data points routinely, then I think phone-based care actually is quite good. But that's the issue. The issue is, has the system changed enough to basically say, I don't need to do a physical exam on someone year after year after year if things are pretty much the same. That is still not the norm in terms of American-based practice. It is still getting people in. Now, shift ahead to sort of more video-based technologies where people think that's a version of more complete care. When you start moving in that direction, there's absolutely no question that for our communities, Access to digital video-based technologies are a real challenge because of cost and, even in our urban environment, consistent bandwidth. And there is the chance of exclusion. And that explains why, as soon as we got past the surge and we began to see patients again in person, there was a sudden rush. And most of our GP clinics are back to about 85% of previous in-person visits. And we had thought maybe that would not be the case, but we're, we're getting up there. It's because it's desire, get back in the room, and also some clients see the digital piece as being perhaps not as, maybe not as accurate for them, their concerns about quality, not having the touch. I, I think that means a lot to some of our uh, clients. So yeah, I, I think that's an ongoing challenge. And as you know, if you've been following U.S. politics, one of the big issues that the new administration is looking at is this notion of a more complete sense of what infrastructure improvement means. It certainly now includes improvement to broadband, but also as an equity issue, maybe subsidizing the cost of these technologies, which is something that we have not thought about before. And Steve, any reflections from you on that making these new ways of delivering care work for all parts of the community? Well, this is when I think about change. I would say defending our current approach, you know, as Henry describes it in the United States, is clearly not working at all for a large number of groups in the community. So saying we may exclude some people 
by changing to a new way of interacting, well, it's already excluding vast numbers of people today. There's no such thing as an abrupt, today we're doing it one way, tomorrow we're doing it another way. I, I call this the Netflix blockbuster shift. Netflix came into being and it was 10 years before Blockbuster realized that it was no longer a relevant model. So this will be at least a decade-long transition. Anything new that you build, you want to build for a future state. So as we move forward, I think we want to recognize that we have a younger demographic who will need care, who will demand a different way of interacting, and then say, well, the choice should be you can text, you can audio only, you can audio video, or you can do real-time in person. Building it to assume there is only one way forward is not a rational premise. So how do we begin to have a system that can pivot at a moment's notice as the conditions on the ground change? And what we've learned is we're going to miss a lot of people if we don't have something that can fluidly adapt to as the world changes in real time. I really want to chime in on Steve's point and just build on this. There is a bit of this sort of uh, you know dichotomy along age that we see. For the, I would say the you know baby boomer population and above, where even though they're digitally savvy, the issue is do they feel like they're getting the same quality? And I, I we're trying an experiment that I think will get us over the hump. And and I think that the idea of doing remote patient monitoring is actually going to make a difference in converting a lot of these folks over into digital visits. And the reason is the following. There is nothing more accurate when you're treating someone with chronic conditions, right? So think baby boomers, hypertension, diabetes, you know, that kind of thing. And you say to them, look, I know you when you come in to see me in my office once every two or three months, we get these values and it looks like this, and then we have to do something about it. But what's really more accurate is how is your blood pressure trending in between the visits? How are your blood sugars trending in between the visits? Now, if I can get access to that without you having to go to a lab, and that comes right into our electronic system through remote patient monitoring and through Bluetooth devices, I think that's going to be a big conversion factor. So, Steve, whenever I hear anyone from the Nuka system speak, I'm always really struck by how different the language is that you use around how you work with your community. So you have this sense of community ownership, or I think customer ownership is, is the phrase you use, and, and really working in partnership. So for you, how do you work with your communities around changes you're making to the way you deliver care? Early on, we would go through the focus groups and getting feedback and doing surveys and things like that. And we recognized that to do change as rapidly as we often needed to do change, it created such a time delay that it was really difficult. So probably about 20 years ago, we shifted our strategy. We said one of the operational imperatives of the organization would be to employ the community. So we look as a benchmark measure, we want to have, and today we have about 65% of the entire workforce is from the community that we serve. So they both work here and they have a chart here. Our entire board is all community members and all have charts here with us. But what we had to do is to say, that's not just something people will wake up and say, I'm going to, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to work for South Central Foundation because they were graduating from high school. They didn't know what career they wanted. They needed new skills. So we actually had to build an institute 
to actually train and recruit them. So as an example, we say if you've graduated from high school or you have a GED and you're part of the native community and you don't have a job, we will train you and pay you while we train you for 12 weeks. And we will teach you Microsoft, we will teach you computer skills, we will teach you office skills for 12 weeks, we'll pay you. And then you'll leave, we'll give you a certificate for that training. Now, if you wanna apply for a job here at the end of that, that'd be great. But if not, if you wanna work someplace else, that's fine too. We're not going to make it contingent upon taking your money for the training that you work for us. Now, we also said, once you do work for us, we're gonna give you a clear progression of a career ladder where you could say, well, in five years, I could become a admin three. I could become a program coordinator. I could become a manager over time, or I could go more the medical track or more the infrastructure support track into data and IT and things like that. So we create an opportunity where we say, if we hire you when you're 18 years old, we wanna have a viable means of employing you until you retire. So when we ask, how's it going for the community? We are the community. That's such a powerfully different way of thinking about the, the relationship between the health system and its community. I think when people talk about health and care organisations acting as anchor institutions or anchor systems, that's a description of what that actually looks like in, in practice. So stepping back a little bit, it seems as though your organisations both work from a really strong values base. Now, of course, lots of organisations have lists of values, but don't necessarily live those values in everything they do, but that feels different for your organisations. So I wonder if you could just briefly say a bit about the values that underpin your systems and, and how they're embedded. Henry? I think that Montefiore uh, mission really has always included a sense of social justice and equity. We very much invest in our community through making sure that we have employment opportunities in the way that Steve just described. But I also think of our um, place in our school health system, where Montefiore basically has 30 clinics located within our middle schools and our high schools, and what impact that has on not only providing uh, care for folks right where they largely go in the institutions that are really surround their daily lives, but also as it relates to their role modeling and seeing the kinds of people that we have at Montefiore who look like them, and they can then see that this is a possibility for them. So I would say that pretty much reflects our real values. I'd like to end by looking to the future. So lots of changes have happened over the past year or so. What do you hope health systems around the world will learn from the experience we've had? And what changes would you like to see health and care systems take from that into the future? You know, there's what I'd like to see, and then realistically the way that care is reimbursed here in the United States makes it more complicated. But really what I'd like to see looking into the future is a lot more consumer-directed ways for them to obtain the health care that they want at the time that they want the health care. I don't believe we're there yet, but I'd like for us to get there. And ways would be, for example, allowing our consumers to interact through consumer portals that not only get them in touch with a provider, but also provides them with a level of information in which they can act positively for themselves. If you look at most things, at least the literature I'm familiar with in psychiatry and mental health, I would estimate that at least 50 to 60 percent 
are things that they can actually do themselves if we provided them the right kinds of educational material. And I mean really engaging stuff. And I, I think in healthcare, we're not there yet. You know, we haven't provided that Netflix-type experience, but that's what I'm looking forward to, for me, <laughs> as well. Steve. We spend tens of billions of dollars uh, a year on things like information exchanges, on sending records to each other across the country back and forth with tremendous time delays, and really, in a lot of cases, sending a lot of non-value-added sort of fluff with the records that we do transfer. And we spend tens of billions, I may go so far as to say as much as close to a trillion a year on this sort of activity of managing information. And yet, you have a Facebook profile, you've got a Twitter profile, you've got a TikTok profile. Why wouldn't you have a health profile? Why wouldn't you own your own medical records? And if you're seeing Henry in New York, you would simply pull out your smartphone and say, as I point with you, I'm going to allow you, Henry, to see all of my health information for the purpose of this encounter. And then as I travel on my vacation to Alaska and I see Steve, the same for Steve. Well, the person who holds this is themselves. The person who shares it is themselves. The work Henry and I have to do to trade this information back and forth is none. And I think as we move forward, we need to think about what is the cost and what is the benefit and what's the loss of that work that we currently do as we build these monstrous behemoth of information you know, exchanges that honestly no one really looks at. Because when you're a GP and you're trying to see your customers per day, you don't have an hour to surf on the web to look at all the other places they may have gone to. You just don't. But meanwhile, we spent billions of dollars in maintaining them. Why would we do that? Why don't we just say, I just need to see your recent labs, your recent vaccinations, your allergies, your meds, and your encounters, and your procedures. That's all I need to do. If you can give them to me, then we're, we're good. And you saved me a tremendous amount of time. Well, you've both left me with lots to think about for what the future might hold, and I hope our listeners as well. Thank you both so much for joining me. That's it from us. If you're interested in learning more about different international systems, then you might like to sign up to our monthly integrated care bulletin or watch the short interviews on our website of leaders from health systems around the world sharing insights and ideas from their systems. There's a link in the show notes for both of those. We'd also love you to subscribe, rate, review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you this time to our supporters for this episode, NHS England and NHS Improvement. And of course, thanks as always to our podcast team, our producer Ian Ford, and our colleagues Ben Collins, Dina Maggs, Nicola Walsh and Helen McKenna for their advice and research support. And finally, thanks to you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.